Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical. Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This week, the Bookshelf Cinema is screening Brooklyn, Spotlight, The Danish Girl, Carol, and more. And at the E-Bar on Thursday, January 4th, Richard Garvey celebrates the release of his new EP, and on Friday, January 5th, Junior Boys launched their new album, Big Black Coat, with special guest Jesse Lanza. The Bookshelf is an independently owned cultural hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph, Ontario, which is a wonderful city located an hour west of Toronto, right off of Highway 401. So if you're on the road, please consider stopping by Guelph and The Bookshelf. For more information about The Bookshelf's hours, listings, blogs, directions, and accessibility, please visit bookshelf.ca. The next edition of Long Winter takes place at the Great Hall in Toronto on Friday, February 19th. Featuring music by The Wooden Sky, For Esme, Pavilion, Datu, Pet Sun, Tokyo Air Show, Ice Cream, North Atlantic Drift, Poster Boy, Craig Dunsmere and Dundun Band, Doc Pickles and the Jim Story Juniors, Kyle Brender, Dan Fortank, Taylor Hoodlum Stevenson, Walrus, The Nick Fraser Sextet, and more. Plus art, performance, dance, and readings by Lena Suksi, Dan Thornhill, and Marcel Ramagnano, Alexandra Gutnick, Nida Kwasowski, Slow Pitch Sound with Pursuit Grooves and Libido, Shannon Scanlon, Videomancy, Rave Tape, Brad Casey, Stephen Thomas, Rachel Bell, Alexandra Naughton, Guillaume Morissette, Ashley Oppheim, Joni Murphy, Beach Sloth, Benjamin Camino, Nadia Fedotova, and Vanessa Barnier. Don't miss The Long Night with Vishkana Talk Show in the Black Box at 9 p.m. Featuring guest appearances by This Exists, Sam Sutherland, comedian Carol Zaccoli, and musician Stacy. Plus, The Long Winter Arcade featuring Chop Squares and Fempocalypse. This edition of Long Winter is an all-ages event that takes place on Friday, February 19th at 7 p.m. The Great Hall is not an accessible venue yet and is located at 1087 Queen Street West. For more information, please visit torontolongwinter.com. Creative Control with Vish You're listening to episode 236 of Creative Control, which features an extensive conversation with Jeremy Greenspan, 
of Junior Boys. Junior Boys is the long-standing electronic pop moniker for the work of Greenspan, a talented musician based in Hamilton, Ontario. Over the past 17 years, he has written some very sophisticated electronic pop music, most notably and consistently with a collaborator named Matt Didymus. The latest effort by Junior Boys is a slyly romantic one called Big Black Coat. It's out now in Canada via Jeej Records and in the rest of the world via City Slang and it's prompted them to tour the world over the next few months. Greenspan and I recently caught up at a bar in Hamilton called The Brain, which he co-owns, and it was a revealing and interesting conversation. You're going to hear that and new music by Junior Boys as well. So, yeah, that's the deal. Here we go. Jeremy Greenspan of Junior Boys on Creative Control. about the brain sure um well that's this um this uh bar which i have uh a part ownership of here in hamilton um but um i spent a lot of time here my studio where i do all of my work is just down the street okay and so this is james street north in hamilton which is uh right downtown and um yeah so my studio is right down the street and so this place um i my, I work in these kind of short spurts um, at the studio. So I work sort of intensively in a spurt, and then I walk over here and do nothing. Sure. And then I walk back and do another spurt, and I just do that all day long. Do the employees here, when you come in, are they like, oh, no, the boss is here. What do I do? One of no. the bosses. No. No. <laughs> no. I, uh, there's a guy who's a manager at the bar, and he's their boss. I'm, I have no say. So you're a part <laughs> owner. You're an investor, basically? More or less. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. you, did you have uh, aspirations to be a bar owner? Like, no. Like Sam Malone on Cheers? Mm, yeah. Uh, no, like basically I, um, I used to have a studio on the third floor here. Okay. And um, a guy who I rented from wanted to put his art supply store in this space. Oh, I see. But then he found a building just down the street, which was more suited to his needs. It's like on the corner, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, called Mixed Media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he used to own this building and I rented from him a studio space. Um, and this is like, uh, 
seven years ago or something. Right. And so he kind of needed to get out of this building because he wanted to buy that one. And, and buildings in Hamilton are still relatively cheap, but they were really cheap back then. And so I had made a little bit of money, which I needed to divest myself of because I'm not very good with money. Hmm. And so um, I decided that I would go in on um, buying this building that I already was renting for my studio. Wow. And so I did. And when I did that, we had this problem that what are we going to do with this downstairs, Mm -hmm. Um, which the people who were here were leaving and all that kind of stuff. So there's a thing that happens in on James Street North every month which is called the uh, art crawl super amazing I wish every city had an art crawl it's pretty amazing and it's been happening for about 10 years and and I maybe even more actually um, but uh, you know I was a I was a, an early kind of uh, James Street North uh, renter okay so, you know so I was involved in the in the art crawl um, and just, just so for people who are listening that don't know what the art crawl is. So every second Friday of yeah. the month, um, what it originally was, was there was a number of art galleries. Um, and it was principally, I think, set up by a guy named Dane Peterson, who ran an art gallery. And I think he coordinated with the other art gallery owners, uh, Bryce Cannonborough, a few other guys, um, to do all of the coordinated so that all of their art openings happened on the same day of the month. Right. So that uh, that second Friday, people could come to one opening and then move to another opening and then move to another opening. Um, and so what ended up happening was it morphed from that into a kind of monthly fair. Yeah. It's a kind of street fair sort of with, with these art openings still happening at the galleries. Um, and then also people coming down and selling stuff on the streets and then also um, boutique shops having staying open much later than they ordinarily would or that kind of stuff. Yeah, so when I've been to the art crawl and I've been a few times, you can literally just go door to door to each business and maybe someone's selling secondhand records, someone's got a tea shop or something. And right. They, and they all participate. It's an amazing galvanizing thing. It's cool. It's pretty cool. Um, and so when it started... Um, there was never anywhere to go afterwards. Right. Uh, my our friend Gary used to always just have parties at his house, basically every art crawl, uh, at which I'm sure he grew sick of after a while. Right. And um, uh, I everyone always used to say, I wish there was a bar to go to. Right. And so when we had this space, it seemed to me like a good idea to set up a bar. It was a naive thing at the time because I had no idea how much of a pain it is to open a bar sure, in Ontario. Sure, sure. But you mean like all the, the legal stuff and bureaucratic yeah, stuff and right. city stuff and all that. But um, I had a friend named Heather who um, worked at uh, a, a, a bar in Toronto called The Only, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which this place was kind of modeled after because it was she basically was a manager there. And um, I said, well, why don't you come down to Hamilton and and open this bar, open a new bar in Hamilton. And that's what she did. So she came here and uh, she basically opened this place and ran it for several years. Um, And uh, then she has left and now our longtime employee became the manager, a guy named Ken Inouye, who's also a 
promoter in Hamilton. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he used to have Pepper Jack Cafe. That's right, right. And so now he is the manager here. And um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's a very, as you can see, it's a small little it's casual, neighborhood it's nice, yeah. bar. It's very lovely. I mean, yeah. the people seem nice. It's we're here in the middle of the afternoon. It's yeah, it gets a little busier at night generally, <laughs> but it, it's um, I don't have a lot to do with it. Sure. Let's put it that way. I, I don't um, I don't make a lot of big decisions. Are you from Hamilton originally? Born and born and raised. Yeah. Born and raised in Hamilton, and so you you've seen Hamilton become recognized for its arts and culture. Right. Yeah. Would you say that's there's been a particular emphasis? on it in the last decade or so? It seems years? like it. Yeah. It seems like it. Um, although, ironically, I think Hamilton um, was, in terms of going out and doing things, especially in music, was a better city uh, 15, 20 years ago than it is today. Really? In terms of, yeah, I mean, in terms of there being more clubs, and and in my area of electronic music or dance music, that's certainly the true. Um, that there was sort of there was a better scene for that. I'm, uh, I'm I'm familiar with Hamilton. Kind of became a formative thing for me as a kid because of Sonic Onion Records. Yeah. And then the clubs I knew were like uh, the uh, Raven. Yeah. And uh, what should call it? The Underground. Is that what it was called? Yeah. Yeah. And where would you? Tend to play so those those clubs and that whole world of you know, Sonic Onion and stuff. Who I'm uh, really close friends with those guys because they they're my landlords at my new studio. Oh okay. Um, uh, and so I know those guys really well. Um, but that was a, a different kind of scene that was happening in Hamilton that I wasn't much of a participant with. So it, rock, indie the world rock. of indie rock, yeah. which I've just never been a a, a real participant in. Mm-hmm. I was more when I first started uh, going out in Hamilton. It was uh, to the clubs that did played sort of like industrial music, or sort of you know goth industrial clubs. So there used to be a place called the X Club I used to go to, okay. um, and then there used to be Fever Nightclub, which would uh, sometimes bring uh, like uh, Detroit techno DJs and stuff like that. And then there was a real scene of like underground rave parties uh, that happened in um, in Hamilton that were mainly um, run by. Uh, there was a guy named Ali Barkovich, and uh, there's a Steel City Records and Storm uh, Productions, I think they were called, and then um, and then Al Lanza, who uh, uh, is the three in Azarian Three, also used to uh, put on a lot of parties, and that's how Al is related to Jesse, Jesse? It's Jesse's cousin, yeah, Jesse's cousin, yeah, okay, Jesse Lanza, prominent. You've worked yeah. with Jesse Lanza. Yeah. I want to talk to her, uh, about her in a little bit. Yeah. So you would go to clubs, and did you? You say you weren't. You had no particular affiliation, or maybe even an affinity for the indie rock stuff going on. Right. Do you? Were you ever into rock music per se? Yeah, when I was a kid, like before I. Uh, things changed when I got to high school, but when I was a kid, I was really into like classic rock, and progressive rock. You know. Um, Genesis, yes. That sort of thing, Rush, yes, uh, Neil Young, and I, I like Steely Dan, and early Pink Floyd, and uh, Black Sabbath, all that kind of stuff I liked as a kid. Okay. Um, <clears throat> until I turned about, I don't think I ever stopped, stopped liking that stuff. I also liked Metallica and stuff like that. Okay. Um, but when I turned uh, 14, the group of friends that I met at my high school um, 
got me into industrial music. That was my first introduction into electronic music. So that's like Skinny Puppy, Front 242, Ministry, um, Revolting the first Cox Nine Inch Nails, yeah, right. like Revolting Cox, all right. that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, and so I really got into that. And through that, I got into techno and Detroit techno. Because all the people I knew who listened to Detroit techno or got into it through industrial music generally. What was it about industrial music that appealed to you? Because I'm only curious because on some level, industrial music is this amalgam of rock yeah. and, or in some cases, punk, and then yeah. also electronic music. Yeah. So for me, I liked a lot of progressive rock as a kid. Mm-hmm. Stuff that had synthesizers. Synthesized like sounds, but... Yeah, yeah, you know, and and stuff that was experimental. But of course, it wasn't you know, it wasn't my generation. Right. So, uh, you know, everybody, I think, wanted something that was generationally theirs. And so, um, to me, the natural thing was uh, that industrial music. Indie rock, to me, was always to... Um, wasn't... You know, I've always had, my whole life, a love of science fiction and a sort of futurist uh, um, fascination. Sure. Um, especially in terms of popular culture. I've always wanted things that I felt were um, speaking to me f- from the future or that, um, it sounds that at like least uh, hinted at a type of urgency, like a cultural urgency that you're moving forward. There's a kind of cosplay or something involved oh, in yeah, industrial definitely. music, right? Yeah, there was sure. all this like disguises yeah, and yeah, monikers sure. and stuff like yeah. that. I wasn't into that so much. I didn't no? have too okay. many outfits. It seemed like kind of cartoony, yeah. which it was very difficult for some of us to take it seriously. Yeah, sure. Even though if you listen to the record, some of it would be really cool. Yeah. But if you actually had to encounter a video or any kind of visual stuff, you'd be like, why are they, what the hell is going on? Yeah. I think for me, I found indie rock too earnest and too, um, I, and just, you know, at a certain point, you kind of start rejecting rock and roll. That's what... If people who get into electronic music, at a certain point, you start to sort of feel like guitars are bad. Sure. <laughs> you know? Sure. And, and that, was, that was my mindset, definitely, uh, at that point. And then I, I got increasingly more and more immersed in dance music until then I turned 17 and I moved to England. Oh, you did? Uh, yeah, oh, okay. I lived in England for about a year and a half. And that was like, for a young, small-town Canadian um, who was interested in dance music, moving to England was like was like a, was like a hajj, you know? It was like, <laughs> I mean, it really was like... Uh, Whereabouts did you live? I lived in a, not a big city. I lived in a small town called Lemington Spa. Okay. Um, but I moved in... Uh, I moved in with my sister who was going to school there and I also the other person who was living there was uh, Steve Goodman who is the founder of Hyperdub Records who um, puts out uh, my he stuff with Jesse. He was friends with your sister? He was friends with my oh, sister okay. and he was going to school at the same place as my sister. They were just roommates. Okay. And so I moved in and so um, I met him and I met a few other people. I met a, a, a music writer uh, named Mark Fisher, who had a huge influence on me. Mm. Uh, and so through that, I became interested in the, the British side of dance music, uh, drum and bass, and then into sort of UK speed garage and stuff like that. And also through those, that guy Mark Fisher in particular, uh, really opened my eyes to um, synth pop and new wave music. And it's, and it's funny, I was just talking about this with the last interview. You know, like in 1996 and 97, when I was there, 
uh, being interested in 80s synth pop was really <laughs> was it was uh, was a little bit unusual. I mean, it seems strange now to think that there was ever a time when the 80s wasn't cool, because the 80s now is this like. I think that the 80s has become like a new 60s. It's There's like a, the it's like a sense that everything that happened in the 80s was like culturally but I think in the 90s what the 80s meant to people was like hair metal and right. You know, and so the the notion of going back to the 80s as a time of of um uh cultural capital or whatever you know well um, people a lot of people really re- resented the production sound uh, yeah, of the exactly, 80s and exactly because I, I want to ask you about that as well because you because you've been immersed in it so long you've also witnessed the pervasiveness of synthesized music yeah you've seen it become go from I assume some kind of underground phenomenon to I mean some of this 80s fast or the fascination with temporal periods can have a novelty aspect to it? They can. And I think at first, the fascination with the 80s was that. Yeah. It's sort of more from a kind of uh, kitschy fascination right. to now, I think the 80s is viewed as this sort of fertile time of, you know, post-punk and everything just being this sort of this sort of perfect time of music. Um, and and I have obviously am sympathetic to that. Um but it is funny to think of a time in the 90s when when I really was discovering that music as that being that was quite unusual back then and so when I came back to Canada and started working on music that sort of synthesized uh, 80s music with the stuff I listened to at the the modern stuff like contemporary dance music and contemporary R&B um, that seemed new and unusual that period you're talking about in the mid to late 90s was a strange one for music because music had gotten in terms of mainstream music anyway or acceptable mainstream music things had gotten really aggressive and very distorted and the but we're 96 97 is kind of this for me anyway i recall it being a strange bleak period um after kind of post nirvana and all that stuff people underground music was the co-opting aspect of it was sort of dying out like people had co-opted it and then jettisoned it on some level and left it behind i think for me it was a really exciting time because it was this explosion of rave rave culture everywhere yeah and so i sort of thought this was going to be like a whole new revolution in music and so what ended up happening was indie rock kind of came back in a really major way in the early 2000s. Yeah, the turn of the century, yeah. And for me, that was a kind of major disappointment because mm. I sort of... I, I, <laughs> I was really excited about the prospect of... You know, for me, rave, rave culture was my punk moment. It was the moment for me where everything from the past is erased where, you know, music is a new, it's a whole new method of distribution of music, a whole new method of listening to music and all of that kind of stuff. That was the, the for me, that was the promise of rave culture. But so that, that period in the 90s that we were discussing, things were really guitar oriented. And when, I assume when rave culture emerged and when electronic music began to become more... Uh, popular that it has do you think electronic music has a softness to it 
Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In fact, for me, when when I moved to England, uh, some of the new wave stuff that I really got into, what was the most eye-opening stuff about it was that there was a kind of certain quietness about certain types of new wave artists that I didn't get from the industrial stuff that I knew and loved. You know, bands like Front 242, who I, I do love, but there's a kind of, and Nitzareb and whatever. Sure. But there's this, like, kind of aggressive, whatever. It sort of w- lives in the world of heavy metal, kind of, you know, this kind it's of a, a punk or, you know. It's a less subtle intensity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so for me, when I heard, the, the ones who really changed everything for me were John Fox, who is a singer of Ultravox, uh, Japan, and uh, orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Interesting. Uh, and those, those, those three, maybe more than anyone, uh, had this uh, were eye-opening for me in this way of like creating this kind of um, electronic synth pop music that was like more sort of emotionally subtle. It wasn't sort of like. You know, it wasn't front two four two cold aggressive. You know, it was like uh, it was um, it was more nuanced emotionally for me. Craftwork also, I always thought of as being emotionally more nuanced in a way, more than they're given credit for. Do you think that 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 indie rock comeback that you were describing at the turn of the century was that some kind of rejection of rave culture and electronic music? I don't know. I don't know. I mean... Uh, I feel like it started with the Strokes, honestly. Yeah, probably. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it was so... And a rejection of things like Britney Spears or yeah, the, the kind of pop stuff that was happening. Possibly. Which mostly is more in line because of the production with rave culture Absolutely. and electronic music. Absolutely. So when this wave... I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's... A, well, I actually have a theory. And I think it might have to do with race... Yeah. Because I think that every time there's an upswing in electronic music, there is a feeling among the rock establishment yeah. that that's a threat. I think and, that's absolutely right. And inherently within that, I think there's some racial stuff going sure. on. Sure, and that's 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 a that's a that's a thing that that you know that's that's disco sucks. Yeah, that's you know it's the same stuff. It's it's you know the thing that was most exciting to me about dance music. Um, and why for me it was a much more vibrant thing than punk music, for example, why I was never that interested in punk music and more interested in dance music was that dance music was like, was a dance music more than, and disco more than any other music ever in history is impossible to um, define in, in those kinds of terms, in terms of race and sexuality and all those things because disco and dance music isn't black music explicitly mm-hmm. and it certainly isn't white music right uh, and it's not heterosexual music and it's also not explicitly gay music it is it, you know there's it, it exists in this way which is is made by disparate groups of people who create different scenes and different whatever uh, things but there's um, there's nothing implicit in it that makes it one way or the other. Uh, and so that was that's an exciting thing about dance music for me. Yeah, and always has been. And you know, um, it's it, it it's it, there's not a sense of ownership by any cultural group. 
Well, one even of the- even even a class level, you know, that's it's neither working class music nor middle class music. No, and implicit in the name dance music is this sense of we're going to have fun. Yeah, and everyone is going to have fun. Yeah, but I think the people that rejected it, I'm not saying they aren't fun. Yeah, sure. But I don't think they liked. There's they don't like that implicit notion that this is the kind of music that you have to have fun to. I think the idea there is that you can't have emotionally complicated themes in dance music, which I obviously think is not true. Yeah. Um, but, and then there's like a sort of, for me, a, just a silly notion of authenticity. Like uh, somehow, uh, somehow a, an acoustic guitar is more authentic than a, you know, than a such an, you know, or whatever. Aren't we well past that though? Um, I think we are, and especially that's why I was saying, like, it's funny to think that there was a time right. in the 90s when the 80s was, uh, you know, because now we're at this time where, um, where, yeah, I don't think that that is all that prevalent. Although, you know, uh, I think that there is always, notionally, I think there's a lot of people who think that dance music is... Um, uh, I don't know what the word is. Um, Vapid. Yeah, yeah, sure. There's a feeling that, it or or that it's or that it's um, uh, disposable. Yeah, these are all good <laughs> words. These are all good Sorry. words. No, no, they're uh, those. Those are the words I'm looking for. There's a sense that it's a slight music. It's not as substantial as something. Else. And 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 to be honest, uh, the way the culture of dance music generally unfolds uh, doesn't uh, do much to dissuade people from those opinions because uh, a career in dance music is a hard thing to maintain um, because I mean there's dance musicians that I loved uh, that I even forget <laughs> you know like it the thing the the mom- the movements in dance music happen so fast and people become s- obsolete so quickly and um, that it just, it's a hyper accelerated uh, kind of, there's a kind of hyper accelerated sort of cultural trajectory. There's something about the, the stereotypes of rave music and techno music in the, at the turn of the century in particular were that it was this repetitive, pulsing yeah. sound. Even vocals were just repeated. And, and Absolutely, was, yeah. So on some level, it didn't feel like as much as that's a form of expression, it didn't feel like something meaningful was being expressed. Your take on it, and I don't know if you consider yourself a dance music artist. I don't. Because you write pop songs in a dance music framework. That's right. And you put a fair amount of time into lyrics and structures. So you are trying to convey, I mean, I was listening to Big Black Coat on the way here. It is such a romantic, devotional album to me. I basically view myself as someone who makes pop music. I view myself as sort of the tradition of outsider pop music. Um, but I, but essentially as pop music, the only thing is, is that I come, f- it's like, um, uh, it's what your roots are, your background. It's like, you know, in the sixties, if you were like Eric Clapton or something and you're making pop songs and your roots were in the, listening to old blues records yeah, or whatever. Yeah. For me, my roots are dance music, techno music. Your core is dance. My core is yeah. that. But yeah. that I am attempting to make pop music. 
so it's just a way of uh, just saying this is what in infects everything I do or or um, informs everything I do is from this whatever this sort of dance perspective it's a natural extension of who you are yeah do you have a sense of on this record what you were driven by because to me it almost seems like you have a single muse as you're going as I, as I hear the songs unfold I'm like and I don't know if this is a narrative device or if this is a personal thing for you but it does seem like a single entity is being addressed yeah so for this new record I, I sort of um, purposefully made the record without a kind of conceptual framework to it um, which was unlike the last two records I've done where I kind of had these sort of strong concepts to them that I think were only more or less useful for me as a person making the records in terms of I had a concept that I was working out and that were meaningful to me and they, you know, they weren't concepts that were dependent uh, you you, you didn't have to understand them to to understand the record so to speak, but so I don't know how useful the concepts were. Were the was the conceptual framework of the record illuminated by you talking about the fact that there was a concept, or was it obvious to people? No, I think they're probably just only talking about it exactly. So like you know, I feel like that's the case with lots of concept. Records. Exactly. If exactly. it's framed as a concept record, people exactly. are like, oh, exactly. So there was have, nothing. Yeah. I don't think there was anything. They, the and even beyond that, I think I could have gotten away with never telling anyone yeah, exactly. what the concepts were. Right. Um, and in fact. So that's why I say they were useful for me in terms of constructing the album. So Focusing I'm, the project. Exactly. Yeah. So with this new album, I, I purpose, purposefully didn't have an overarching concept uh, to the album while I was making it. But on reflection, there was one concept which was a... a um hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot... We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In terms of um, method um, in, in making the record, um, I was aware of a change in how I approached uh, actual songwriting in terms of on the last two records, I had worked on a small number of songs, uh, starting them in much the same way that I start any kind of piece of music, whereas I set up a whole bunch of pieces of electronic equipment and get them to talk to each other and then press play and then fiddle and then something kind of emerges. I see, I see. That's usually my first method of of starting. Uh, On the last couple of records, I would do that 
then take those pieces of music and then work them and work them and rework them and then create all sorts of kind of uh, musical modulation and all sorts of complicated things to turn them into sort of complex pop songs. Right. Um, with a small group of songs being worked over and over and over again. On the new Junior Boys record, um, the idea uh, was to work on a much larger group of songs and to do everything the same way, to set up the equipment and do all that kind of stuff. But instead of reworking them, just sort of press play, let them do their thing, and then do the least amount of work possible in terms of arrangement and and to keep them in as raw a state as possible without uh, having huge changes to where they were at the beginning and in terms of re really thinking through the songwriting structure. Hmm. Um, uh, so I wasn't trying to conform the songs to... Um, to uh, pop structures that I really wanted to be working on or blah, blah, blah. You're talking strictly production or musically? Totally musically. Okay. But I think that speaks also to the, the lyrical content, which was I did everything very, very quickly. I approached, I approached the lyric writing and the actual vocal production on this record vastly differently than I have before. So usually what I would do is I would write a song doing all the stuff I do and then I would start playing around with vocal melodies and then just start singing a little bit of gibberish here and there sure. and turn that gibberish into uh, lyrics and then when I'm done what I would do is I would sing those lyrics uh, as a demo and then think about them for a while rework, do some editing turn them into things that make more sense because they became more lyrical mm -hmm. more uh poetic if you will sure. as they went on and then i would re-record those vocals using some super fancy microphone somewhere and get the best possible take i can and that was how traditionally i had done approach oh, okay. doing vocals right this time i did the whole gibberish thing then turn them into real words and that and then i did a demo vocal and that was it you used the demo vocal. i used almost for almost every song i used the demo vocal and so they're sung into pretty lousy microphones, uh, essentially minutes after I've finished writing basically the first draft of the song. Um, and so the idea was I wanted the lyrics to be immediate. Mm -hmm. I didn't want them to seem overthought. Hmm. I wanted them to seem, hence like that's why the the album is filled with the word baby all over the place. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just coming out really fast. It's a placeholder. Placeholders and they're, and they're, and what I think I really wanted was to be speaking in the voice of a real human being, not to be, not to be poetic, but to be speaking in a kind of, uh, man on the street kind of voice. Was, and so huh. when it was finished, the record label asked me to write, all the lyrics for music writers, right. which I've never done before, oh. uh, um, and which I ought ought to have done. Um, I mainly did it because I wanted the music writers to have the lyrics, just so that they don't get them wrong or something of like course. that, which is always a, is embarrassing for everybody. Yep. Um, so I thought I'll do this. So I did it, and once I finished writing them all out, I was amazed to see that all the songs are basically about the same thing. They're all kind of me talking about more or less characters that I've met probably here in this bar 
Not no, a not a particular one. There's a couple of particular guys, but it's mainly a kind of assemblage of various like you know the kinds of guys you meet in bars usually have right. a have an aura of loneliness or something sure. about them, and so I kind of was attracted to these kind of guys and and I just wanted to. All of them are all kind of about guys who are sort of confused by their own emotional states, hmm. or like there's a kind of mild threat of uh, threat of misogyny that goes throughout the record, which I think is kind of weird insofar as there's like these guys who are just like super confused and annoyed by women who don't reciprocate what they feel. Okay. And, uh, you know, so those kinds of, it, and it just was song after song was that. And so I think that sort of, for me was, I realized that there was this sort of concept to the record that insofar as it's just about Hamilton. It's about my experience of living and working here in a in the downtown core of a city that's a post-industrial Rust Belt city that that is um, um, that is a kind of nowheresville, you know. It's funny that you mentioned this the the notion of misogyny because we're living in a strange time of open expression where people feel like they can talk or critique anything that's going on yeah i can't tell if it's healthy or not anymore it's an age of outrage where you know when someone like david bowie passes away in the midst of all the mourning there are people saying but don't forget that in the 70s he was a statutory rapist Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. There's just like this wave of people splashing cold water in everyone's face. I'm not right. saying that's wrong. Sure. It's just like, oh, like a lot of people are like, I didn't know that. Right. I'm yeah. not sure how we're getting along. I mean, most people, I mean, it depends. Most people, if you're saying that the day someone died of a, the, the chances are, I mean, not the general, but chances are you're saying it to, to splash water and people it's you know people are, yeah, it's, yeah you're being provocative or i mean i don't know i have no idea what david bowie's no life one, was like in the 70s but well we kind of are aware vaguely that there was some debauchery no one really knows but i mean he's hardly bill cosby is he i don't know i mean <laughs> right. i don't know but that's what the culture we're living in yeah sure so when you talk about men kind of commiserating about being men and trying to figure out women yeah i mean you're you're tapping into something that i think is going on here uh, yeah, culturally. Yeah, I think the yeah, I think there's certain things on the record that I thought were It's weird when you're writing something where you where you're taking on a slight character and you're not yeah. writing from yeah. your own experience. Yeah. So if you're just writing what you think people want to hear <laughs> or what you think, you know, and you and you and the way in which you want people to judge you as a human being, you're going to create pretty lousy art. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if you are not able to write in a way which someone might accuse you of being this or that, um, then um, you got a bit of a problem. Um, but. There is a weird thread of, of there is a sort of weird misogynistic thread that goes throughout this record, and um, which are you highlighting, critiquing? Like, how would you say? What did you? I don't ask. I mean, I. You've obviously. Yeah, I do critique it in the sense that, like, 
I don't see these the characters that I'm writing about as being people who are emotionally healthy or being emotionally stable or uh, uh, being um, I mean these are they, I'm trying to write about like people I see as, as being like of being generally lonely people who are not able to articulate their own emotional states and lash out social dynamic kind you know? of yeah. and so yeah. uh, you know um, that kind of when a kind of hunger for companionship turns into anger that's kind of the the emotional state I'm talking about right right um, and so um, when I say misogyny it's it, what I'm talking about is a kind of people who live with a sort of resentment and hatred of women because they long for something right. that they don't have you know well, and that's just like a real state you just see it in people's faces all the time right and you were trying to get at that you it sounds like you were trying to tap into the moment yeah that those awkward moments yeah. like by writing with some urgency or immediacy and you know bars are weird places i mean the album's a lot to do with this bar and bars are weird places because they're clusters of people who come together because because of this weird loneliness i mean Anyone who's got a great relationship, chances are they don't spend all of their time in a bar. Right, they spend time in their relationship. (laughs) You're right, you're absolutely right. Uh, And so you're often dealing with people who are really, really hunger for... uh, A lot of people also don't spend... Who don't spend times in bars also do it... Are not generally lonely people. Yeah, yeah, Um, that's true. You know, They're social. Yeah, exactly. You worked with Jesse Lanza on her last record. Yep. And as you were talking about the rawness and the immediacy of lyric writing, it struck me that I had a conversation with her about that exact same thing. Yeah. Where she was like, I was asking her about specific lyrics, like, if you want my love, pull my hair back. Yeah. And stuff like that. And she was saying like, yeah, it was just kind of gibberish. I just take gibberish lines and then... So that was, I mean... I'm just curious about the influence on each other. Well, I think it is a weird cross-pollinization where Jesse... We definitely had this really... This early conversation about this. When we first started making music together, Jesse had these sort of... um, Sort of introspective lyrics that she was writing and they were kind of, you know, about... uh, Complex things and complex themes and all of these kinds of things. And I just was like, this doesn't work. This isn't working. And she's like, well, you know, I was like, just write about love and sex and just keep it, you know, just do that. Right. And suddenly when she was like, when someone told her you can just do that, she was just suddenly just like way happier about the whole writing process. Because, you know, the whole thing about lyrics is that there's a... uh, Again, it's this kind of uh, rockist view that like the lyrics of dance music or something like that have no meaning. And, um, which is ridiculous because there's so much urgency you can hear. If someone's saying one line over and over again, there's an emotional urgency in it, you know, when, you know, and, you know, you don't have to have lyrics that lyrics are not, you know, Stephen Sondheim, who's, you know, one of the great lyricists of the 20th century, uh, famously said, lyrics are not poems. They're not. They don't function in the same way. The lyrics are not meant to be read uh, outside of the context of music. Lyrics are words put to music. Um, and so if you, for me, if you're not viewing the, 
your vocal and your thing as a as an instrument and the lyric as a component of the music as a, or uh, as a component of the music uh, and you are only viewing it as a thing that lives outside of the music um, then you're missing the point I think hmm. so for Jesse, she was uh, able to do that and she got really into it and so when I was doing the she in fact went far and beyond what I had anticipated where she sort of was like I want to start treating my vocal in these really radical ways and I want to start uh, just taking snippets and you know she would take we would take snippets of her lines and we would just be like you know just turn those lines into samples and then just right. use those just like as if they were just pieces of raw audio sure and so for me that was like yes this is a liberating way of dealing with vocals and so I wanted to I wanted to take that uh, approach into doing the Junior Boys record you did and that's what happened that's exactly what happened right and you've had different collaborators in Junior Boys over the years or a couple at least a few yeah and what's the state of the group as it were the group is myself and Matt okay and so on this on this new record what generally happens with Matt has been because Matt lives in Europe and so he came over for a period of time and worked. So the new album is basically half of the album I did by myself mm -hmm. in, in Hamilton and the other half I did in collaboration with Matt. Right. And which is an odd way of working. Um, people sometimes wonder what's going on there. And I usually just answer the same way, which is like the stuff I do with Matt, I generally like better than the stuff I do alone. And I love having the stuff I do with Matt uh, there and um, even though we live in two separate places and it's actually quite difficult to work together, we, we do as much of it as we can. Right, okay. And so that's, that's sort of the That's state. the nature of the configuration. Yeah. What's your relationship like with uh, Dan Snaith of Caribou? So Dan, um, <clears throat> I have a couple of musician friends who I rely on quite heavily um, in terms of helping me edit stuff. Um, and and just being involved in the in the making my my stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's there's basically four that I can think of. There's there's Dan, Jesse, of course. Um, then there's a musician in New York named Morgan Geist, who I've done music with. And then in Toronto, there's David Sutka, who uh, goes under the name Egyptrix. Okay, okay. And so those are the guys. Those four guys I rely on the most heavily. David um, came and, and basically helped mix uh, the whole album with me. Morgan, uh, Jesse obviously was listening to stuff uh, as I was doing it. Morgan and Dan I send stuff to. Dan, um, probably more than anybody else, sends me the most sort of detailed feedback. Right. So I get really, really detailed feedback from Dan in terms of this works and that doesn't work and, and stuff like that. Um, Dan is also the, uh, um, Dan is someone who's, I've participated in his releases a lot. Yeah, that's right. So we, yeah. we do, I do a similar kind of thing where I give him feedback and, um, on his last album, I didn't do a hell of a lot. I helped a little bit with a song that Jesse actually sang on. Um, but the album before that, uh, Swim, uh, I was involved in yeah, I, I, yeah. I helped mix a, a number of the songs on the record and Dan came to Hamilton to do that and uh, and I've and we've written a couple of songs together and stuff like that um, Dan is um, 
I mean, things are very similar to how they have always been with Dan, with the only caveat now that Dan is like, has exploded in popularity. Yeah, he's a superstar. Uh, and in, in an influence. Um, and so, um, <laughs> and so it kind of, um, I have these relationships with all these guys who I do, who do music with. Um, but, uh, Dan's presence looms quite large because of how successful he's well, been. Well, I want to ask about that because Dan hails from this area. He's from yeah. Dundas. And you did you start out making, like, at the same time? Would Junior Boys and Caribou have been um, working? Yeah, yeah. Uh, around the same time. Dan, Dan, so I knew of Dan. Everyone who's, we're, we're the same age, and everyone who does music in a town knows one another yeah, to sure. some extent. Yeah, but I wasn't very close friends with him. In fact, I knew Ryan better. Ryan, who plays guitar in Caribou. Right. Uh, I knew Ryan a little better. Um, uh, but I knew Dan. Uh, everyone knew each other through a guy named Koshet Ghosh, who, was, uh, who sang on Dan's early records okay. and released an album on uh, Stone's Throw Records. Um, um, it wasn't until I got back from England as a teenager, I started DJing uh, UK dance music. Especially speed garage and two-step garage. Like here, you in would Canada. do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I was like one of the only guys who did it because I lived in England. I I knew the music, and there was only a couple of record stores in England that even had the music. And mm. I was special ordering it, and I was getting, you know what I mean. So it was like kind of like becoming like a niche thing. Like I'm the guy who can DJ this dance music that that is just coming out in the UK. Right. And Dan was really interested in the music, and so he kind of got in touch with me, and he used to do these parties in um, in Toronto at uh, not El Macombo Weave or one of the I can't remember the clubs he did them at when he was uh, in U of T and so that's when I really got to know Dan was when I started doing that and then very shortly after that um, he he did his first record with uh, Leaf Records as and Manitoba. As Manitoba. Yeah. And Dan was like the first guy anyone knew who had a record deal and put out a record and stuff like that. And so my relationship with Dan has always been, Dan has always, I always thought of Dan as being like a year ahead of me. You know what I mean? He's like a year <laughs> yeah. older than me. Yeah. He had an album out before I did. And so he had done his own tour before we did. Uh, we our first you know we did a tour opening for Caribou right. when we first started and all that kind of stuff uh, he did first and so um, he's been a good you know he's good a good resource uh, he's kind of like an older brother you know right so you can you know be like you know it's super what sweet. was that like very sweet guy and he's I mean he's the best guy he's the nicest guy yeah interesting okay and and so you. Do you have any insight as to why, beyond his talent, like you come from kind of a similar aesthetic? Do you have mm. any sense of why Caribou seems to have elevated to this point? Um, no. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, other than the obvious, I mean, I I I, I really love his stuff. Yeah. Um, but there's lots of guys whose stuff I love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I don't have a good sense as to why. Although I think Dan has this really there's a good way in which his music appeals to different people for different reasons i think there's a the it, he appeals to like a, a, a sort of snobby techno crowd because he's a great producer but he also appeals to like a sort of broad section of people who like um 
you know, his music has a kind of, uh, there's a sort of fun energy to it or a sort of, I don't know what the word is. Well, it's curious to me that earlier you were talking about, I don't know that I would describe it necessarily as disdain for indie rock, but you just yeah. are just like, indie rock doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Dan's music in particular, and I think some of Junior Boy's music, or Junior Boy's music too, mm. has really been embraced by yeah, those circles. Absolutely. And one of the curious things that I've seen is that electronic artists or artists who are steeped in electronic music are taking synthesized music and making it a live band experience. Yeah. Caribou has been doing this for years and it's amazing. Like yeah. the drum, it's just incredible. And hip hop artists are doing it more and more. It's more <laughs> and more common to see them take bands out to replicate yeah. and sort of bolster the synthesized sound. What do you make of that? It's like a, this weird amalgam well, of you have you have a thing that happens when you put out music. The 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 economic climate that we're in right now, you don't people don't sell enough records to make a living. So the age of people who can just make records, I suppose, and be complete studio bands that don't tour all that much, doesn't isn't really much of an option. Yeah. Um. So you have this thing where touring can make you a living. And so you have a choice to make when you're as a touring artist, what kind of show are you going to put on? And for a band like myself or a band like uh caribou or something, we're non band bands. Yeah. There's no, you know, like Dan's band, for example, is four guys, caribou, uh, Ryan, uh, Brad and John, those guys don't appear on the records in any way. Right. Um, <clears throat> and um, so when he's doing the live show, he's constructing a band where there wasn't one. Yeah, exactly. And so, you're yeah, you have all of these choices to make. And so there's different approaches. You can approach it where you put on a, a totally synthetic show that uh, sounds exactly like your record. Uh, or you can put on a complete, you know, live band version of your record, which is different. Or, you, you know, there's all sorts of different choices you can make. Maybe right. you want to do something like uh, like an EDM show where they basically will just play back the music. Right. But it will be superly, super like carefully orchestrated with a light show that is coordinated. Uh, there's with, some spectacle involved. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I think for us... When we were coming up with uh, the idea of doing a live show, our approach was, I don't really want to do a huge spectacle thing because it doesn't fit the mood of the music. You know, I think the band, we're just too intimate of a band yeah, yeah. for that to really work. Right. And at the same time, we're not a hell of a lot to look at. Right. So my approach, which has been my approach that I'm always comfortable with in terms of making records, is let's try and make it sound as good as possible. Right. So um, what we do as a band is we have a huge amount of equipment on stage. And as much as possible, we have all of those instruments being triggered uh, individually as opposed to having all of the sounds being played back like from a CD or a backing tracks on a computer as much as we can we send out things to individual instruments okay that can that can be tweaked in real time so what is the what is the live configuration of junior boys right live now? configuration is myself matt and a drummer named dale who plays uh 
almost uh, entirely an electronic drum kit. Okay, okay. Uh, although he has a couple of uh, live drums as well. Okay. Um, so he plays an electronic drum kit. Matt has a table that has, I think, we're just practicing right now. I think he's got six synthesizers on his table, which wow. is obscene. Right. Uh, and then I have a, uh, a guitar and uh, a couple of looping pedals, and I sing, of course. Right. And then right. I have a... A keyboard that emulates uh, Rhodes pianos and Morlitzers and stuff like that. Okay, so it's it's a band. It's a band, yeah. yeah. But it's a band that you know, uh, it's it's an after you know. It's not a band that got together, learned had a bunch of songs, recorded as a band, and you know, it's a whole different thing. Right. It's a well, it's a remarkable project, and yeah. I'm a fan of it. So. Uh, you know, congrats on this new record. Thank you. It's amazing. Where can people go to learn more about your stuff? Well, we you can go to juniorboys.ca, yeah. which will have all of our uh, links to our Facebook and all that kind of stuff. And it should have a list of uh, all of our shows that are coming up. You've only got a handful listed so far of shows. Is that right? Well, it seems like more of a handful. Oh, it isn't? Okay. Maybe I'm basing that on the publicist or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, probably just a handful in Canada. Oh, that's what it is. Right. There's Good. probably about three in Canada, but we have about um, uh, three months of touring oh, okay, all over sorry. the world. <laughs> but um, we're just talking with our we're talking with our booking agent right now about trying to set up a a full Canadian tour, which we've never done. Oh, cool. A big full Canadian tour in uh, in the fall. That's what we're hoping to do. Okay, so that might be coming. So juniorboys.ca, yeah. more info there. Is there a song uh, from Big Black Coat that we can go out on? What would you pick? Sure. Um, I would pick... Uh, I like... You know, this is I like these. You know, we do every once in a while we do these slow ballady type songs that yeah. no one ever pays much attention to. But I always like them. And there's a song on the album that I quite like called "No One's Business." No one's business. Yeah. Can you tell us anything about this song? Can you contextualize it? It's the only real love song on the record. I think it's really? the only, well. It's the only real sweet love song. I all the like other ones are kind of they're all they're all about love and relationships. Yeah. But none of them are. They're all kind of like, uh, like I said, they're all slightly tinged with anger. Oh, okay. This no one's business is the only one that's really, I think, sweet at its core. Oh, interesting. It has. I I found the record to flow as it flows. It has a nice sweetness to it, uh, and and I described it earlier as quite devotional. But now I'm gonna have to re-listen. Yeah, listen to it again. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is No One's Business by Junior Boys. Uh, Jeremy, it was great to talk to you. Thank you very much. And congrats on the brain. Oh, cheers. Oh, 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 oh,
new music by junior boys from their brand new album big black coat that was no one's business well that was another episode of this show done done and done i i enjoyed making that one for you i hope you felt that coming up shortly on the show i'm not exactly sure when but soon i've been working on a little little documentary podcast episode about the new album by tortoise called the catastrophist so I've been speaking with people from Tortoise. I've been speaking with some of their collaborators on the record. And so if all goes well, you will hear that soon. I'm still fine-tuning the thing. Also coming up on the show soon, Jeff Berner, noted musician, author, Jeff Berner, alumni of the show. He's going to be back on the show for both an interview and a live performance. Very, very special episode. That's going to be fun. And uh, also on the schedule, another long night with Vishkana episode is coming up. Uh, before the end of the month, if all goes well. So that's the plan. Plans change sometimes, but th- those are the plans. If you want to keep up with Creative Control with Vishkana, you can. The show is available on iTunes, audioboom.com, and vishkana.com. There's also a Patreon site, patreon.com. If you go to patreon.com and look up this show, you can make a flexible monthly donation, and uh, you can even use some T-shirts that we have for sale. Oh, that reminds me. I owe two people T-shirts. I better... Good thing I said that. I will go take care of that right now. I have to mail out some t-shirts. Creative Control of Vishkana is also on Facebook. We're also on Twitter, at Vish Creative, with a K. I'm on uh, Twitter as well, at Vishkana. You can listen to a version of this show every Wednesday at noon Eastern Standard Time on CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph, Ontario, or anywhere in the world. You can listen to this show on CFRU from anywhere via the internet on cfru.ca and I hope you do that I hope you do alright that's the show I will uh, I don't know, talk to you soon as I say the plan soon you will hear the tortoise thing then other stuff we'll see what happens plans they change thanks bye for now
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.